Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from an organization called 1000 Days, which advocates for children in daycare. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Kevin Landers sits down with Governor Mike DeWine to discuss a number of topics, including abortion, the state income tax, and the death penalty and executions, and more. And 10 TV's Angela Ann talks with Ohio's Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown about some highlights from 2022. And in about 35 minutes from now, I'll talk with Elaine Martis from Nationwide Children's Hospital, where she's the co-executive director of the Institute for Genomic Medicine. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me is Blythe Thomas. She's the initiative director for 1000 Days. How are you? I'm well. Good to speak with you. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what 1000 Days is. The 1000 Day window is from pregnancy to age two. And what happens in that first thousand days sets the foundation for every day that follows. How well or how poorly mothers and children are nourished and cared for has a really profound impact on a child's ability to grow, learn, and thrive. And good nutrition in particular plays a critical role in a child's development during that time. And your organization, along with the American Journal of Public Health, is uh, embarking on a mission to put a, a focus on this, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we just launched it. It's about 70 pages, 15 authors, and we're really trying to you know, illuminate and highlight um, that you know, there's a, a big need for additional support for families and children, including improving access to healthy foods, increasing access to strong nutrition and health programs, and providing nutrition education and training for families and healthcare providers. Think about the thousands of babies and toddlers in Ohio that are in daycare eight hours a day. Those centers really need our support to make sure the foods and snacks they're providing are nutritious and will help fuel the growth of our little ones. There's been a lot of attention in recent years, really, on school lunch programs and even the summer lunch program that where kids can get access to food during the summer when they're not in school. But we don't hear a lot about kids that are too young for that. And I guess that's equally, if not more important. Absolutely. Um, you know, that time, especially then from zero to two, uh, when the, the brains of these sweet babies are growing the fastest and nutrition is the fuel that, that grows, that helps with that growth development. And nutrition security in early education and childcare centers can be a lifeline for families and play a critical role in the overall system. Well, the daycare industry was turned upside down during the pandemic. And from what I understand, it was uh, making a slow recovery because it was just such a, you know, there were still a lot of parents that were working from home and maybe not needing daycare and daycares lost some of their revenue because of that and then therefore lost some of their staff. They've really been struggling. Absolutely. I mean, let's not forget that childcare workers are basically heroes. They work long days and they give so much love to our kids that are in their care. And the pandemic was really crushing, really difficult um, for parents as well. I mean, you know, millions of, of women didn't return to work after the pandemic. You know, things felt like they were really upside down. But just to reiterate, I think the role that child care providers play uh, is just so vital, especially for our babies in that thousand day window. And, you know, they need our support as well. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult to find great child care that's affordable, um, that's available in your area. 
And, you know, it's difficult for child care providers, but I am positive that we can make it work. I know that working together as parents and care providers, we can create the best possible environments for all of our children. And really, we have to. We have to keep working at this because what happens to those little babies during that time frame has an impact on every day for the rest of their life. And I also just believe that both, you know, child care providers and parents are superhuman. What we do, how we can survive just about anything and keep raising these kids. I know we can do this, but we've got to work together and we've got to lean on, you know, federal support. We have to ask for help from the government when it, these times are really challenging. And that's what I was going to ask, uh, talking with Blythe Thomas, who is the initiative director for 1000 Days. Are there federal programs that provide food for daycares similar to schools and their lunch programs or what? Yes, absolutely. And it's critical. Um, Today, 4 million children in this country receive nutritious meals and snacks in a setting that has support from, it's a program called the Child and Adult Care Food Program. And I think it's the most promising opportunity. CACFP or the program can equitably promote food and nutrition security. They provide free meals to all children in a childcare setting. A provider can ensure a certain degree of nutrition security for everyone in their care, regardless of their family's income. And participation in the program can promote financial stability for the daycare provider and improve sustainability of local childcare in your community. Did the formula shortage, which I guess is still kind of there a little bit, has that entered into this at all? Has it created any uh, waves of concern for daycares? Oh, absolutely. I mean, early child care centers can you know, really provide that lifeline. And especially, you know, the formula shortage that happened in this country should never have happened. It's absolutely a disaster. And the good news is that a um, lot of mistakes have been learned and are being corrected. I think critical for me at Thousand Days, we are big supporters of number one, feeding babies safely. You know, that level of nutrition security is really important. So whether it's the safety of formula or whether we can invest to help more women be able to have the opportunity to breastfeed. I, I'm so I'm kind of a fanatic about this in the sense that not all women can breastfeed. It's so difficult right now. So we have to give them all the best opportunity to do that. If you don't have paid leave, if you're going back to work, you have, you're working two jobs, it's just impossible to keep up with those goals. And we know that if you can breastfeed, it's actually better for the baby and for the mom. It has tremendous benefits reducing the potential of diabetes, ovarian cancer. Uh, it's really important. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm pleased that the government stepped up the way that they did. And I'm pleased that there's some important laws in place now and better protections to make sure that we don't go through anything like that again. And that is an interesting point you made, though, because I've read uh, stories of uh, women who don't breastfeed their children for those reasons that you mentioned who are stigmatized. I mean, they, people sometimes look down on them thinking, why are you looking for formula? You shouldn't be doing it anyway. Can you imagine how difficult? I mean, what kind of pressure are we trying to put on these women? It's crazy. No, I think what has to happen is we've got to have protections in place. We have to make it 
easier for people to achieve those goals. And, you know, the last thing that people should do is point fingers at each other. If we're going to point fingers, let's look at what's happening. Is it the industry? Is it these formula companies? Is it local, federal government? Let's let's work together to find better solutions, not point fingers at one another. Talking with Blythe Thomas, Initiative Director for 1000 Days. Blythe, how can folks find out more about this effort that you're talking about or get involved or just get more information? Yeah, thanks. So um, first, if there's anyone listening that's struggling to find the right child care, I really like this website, childcare.gov. It walks you through how to find care near you. You put in your zip code and also how to access financial support if you qualify. And then for us, we are parents at 1000 Days and we're with you. We know how difficult parenting can be and we want to be a place where people can engage and communicate with us. So you can visit our website, 1000days.org, but especially join us on Instagram and Facebook and be part of our robust community. I'm always so humbled by the families who are on our channels and you know, speaking about all the struggles that they're having and also sharing their successes. Okay, Blythe Thomas, Initiative Director for 1000 Days. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. Three million Americans have glaucoma and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. What I know about courage, I learned from my adoptive mom. She said sometimes you just got to hold on and know we'll get through this. Mom, we are so high up. Hold my hand. (laughs) No, you hold my hand. Here we go. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit adoptuskids.org to find out more. I learned patience from my adoptive dad. All he had to say was, Hey, you got this. Just breathe. Hey. (laughs) We're pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) Might have to start a band. (laughs) I got it. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. (laughs) Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. This message is brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Here's Angela Ann from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV.
for joining us for Face the State. I'm Angela, and Tracy is enjoying the holiday. We are going to have a fireside chat with the leader of Ohio. 10TV's Kevin Landers recently sat down with Governor Mike DeWine for a one-on-one interview. For more than 20 minutes, they talked about some of the most controversial topics of 2022. We start this morning with, with what the governor had to say about the abortion issue. Majority of Ohioans believe that abortion should be legal. The way Ohio's law is right now, it's very restrictive. Do you see yourself supporting any exceptions to the abortion law? Here's what I've said. This matter we thought was going to be taken up by the the General Assembly, by the legislature in the lame duck session. Obviously, it was not. We would expect the legislature, the new legislature, to take this issue up uh, in in January. a couple things, and I say this as, as governor of all the people of the state of Ohio. Uh, as we go through this debate, it's important for us to remember that whatever side we are on, there are people on the other side of good faith, good people, and this is a, an issue that people feel very, very strongly about, and it's important for us to try to conduct this debate in, in a civil way where we show respect for our fellow Ohioans. Number two, I'm pro-life. Uh, I believe that it's important that we save as many lives as we can. Uh, What I've said to the General Assembly, uh, again, I will say it again, is as we go about this, as they go about the job of writing a new law in regard to abortion, they need to keep in mind that it needs to be a law that will stay on the books. It needs to be a law that is sustainable. And by that, I mean we are a state that allows people, the people of the state, to go to the ballot box and override what the legislature has done. And so as the legislature considers what to put in this abortion bill, it's very important. We try to save as many lives as we can. But at the the same time, we have something that's sustainable and that does not get overridden when it goes on on the ballot. So, again, that balance has has to be achieved, and I hope it can be achieved in a civil way where we don't tear the state apart uh, debating this this issue. We have other things that we need to focus on as well. This is very important. Uh, and again, we need to save as many lives as we can, but we also need to have something that's sustainable that will be uh, that will continue on. Governor DeWine also talked about the redistricting fight we saw in 2022 and why, in his opinion, the system didn't work. This was a new, uh, relatively new two constitutional amendments. Uh, Democrats, Republicans came together to try to come up with a system that would make redistricting reapportionment work better. It didn't. Uh, It just did not work. We ended up in court. Uh, Unfortunately, we ended up with a Supreme Court series of decisions uh, that, to some extent, flew in the face of what the objective was. The objective, one of the main objectives, was to have more compact districts, uh, and at the same time have more competitive districts. Everyone, I think, believes that we should have more competitive districts rather than fewer competitive districts. Yet if you look at the Supreme Court decision, it compelled us uh, in, in, in some cases to have fewer, not more, competitive districts. No one envisioned that, but that's where we are today, and that's a problem. It's a problem that how are you going to fix Look, I think the only thing, the only way we're really going to be able to permanently fix this is to go back, try to put a coalition of Democrats and Republicans together and come up with a new constitutional amendment. I don't know any other way of doing it. 
So we also asked Governor DeWine about three ongoing debates, the future of vaccines, the death penalty, and whether it's time to make Ohio a no-income tax state. I would love to have no in income tax. I'd love to have no real estate tax. And uh, look, I, I don't see how uh, you move to no income tax at this point. Um, you know, the numbers don't work. Uh, if we're talking about, you know, funding our schools, giving parents more choice in regard to our schools, keeping up our state parks, uh, focusing on mental health, um, there's no way you could do that uh, by totally eliminating the income tax. And what the other thing that would happen is all other taxes would go up dramatically. You know, it's easy to say, let's do away with the income tax. But you're going you're gonna to see sales tax would have to go up dramatically, uh, would impact the poorest uh, of our citizens, citizens who, who, who need help the most. Uh, you would see real estate taxes go up. Again, they're high enough as it is. We're, I talk to senior citizens a lot who tell me they don't want to see their real estate taxes go up. So it's, it's nice to say we're going to do away with income tax until you look at what happens when you do it. And I don't think people want those consequences. Look, can we, can we reduce taxes? Yes, we've reduced taxes uh, under under my watch, and the legislature has passed reductions. We can pass future reductions in, in, in income tax and other taxes, but to say we're going to totally do away with it uh, is just, I don't see how that happens. You've halted all executions in the state until the Department of Corrections develops a new court-approved execution protocol. Does the death penalty have a future in Ohio? I don't think you're going to, there's been no executions uh, since I became governor. I don't anticipate we will see any uh, executions as, as long as I'm governor of the state. Um, look, we are in a situation where the only way executions can legally take place is through lethal injection. And yet we have drug companies where we would get these drugs or we would get their drugs somewhere who have threatened the state, threatened the people of Ohio, and said, if you use our drug in execution, you're not going to be able to buy our drugs that save lives. Uh, the state hospitals are not going to be able to get these drugs that we essentially need. So we're, we're in a situation, uh, unless the law has changed, where we're not going to see executions going forward. Last time we spoke, um, we were talking about the encouragement of people to get their booster shots. So we've now we've got COVID, we've got measles, we've got flu. What are you hearing from the Ohio Department of Health? How concerned are you about the colliding of all of these together and the fact that we've got unvaccinated children spreading measles in our state and we are at the epicenter of the measles epidemic? We do have uh, measles outbreaks. Measles can be very, very dangerous. Uh, and so that certainly does, does concern me. Uh, you know, Dr. Vanderhoff, who's our director of health, uh, you know, tells me and other doctors tell me that we're seeing the flu season about two months earlier than we normally see it. So you've got a lot of things. You've got the COVID still out there. Uh, you, you've got the measles. You've got young children with other respiratory uh, problems. So it's something that parents need to be very, very much aware of. In uh, any you know adult who has not been vaccinated, for example, and needs to be concerned about it as as, as well. So, 
uh, you know, it's it's we are concerned about this, and I think what the state has to continue to do, the health department has to continue to do, and local doctors do, is to let people know the facts. Continue to advise people, here's what's going on, here's where the dangers are. Uh, now, the good news is that with immunization for children, we are not seeing really a downtick in that. Uh, we're seeing immunization about where it's been. We've been able to maintain that. And that certainly is a good thing. There's a bill before the House that would ban mandates of COVID-19 vaccines at colleges and universities in Ohio. Was that something you'd sign? Well, we don't know what the final bill would be. Um, you know, we're, what we're not we're not seeing today, uh, educators, uh, you know, penalizing children uh, or students uh, for not being vaccinated. We're not, as far as COVID, we are, we are not seeing that. We're well on our way through this COVID. It's still out there very, very much. So look, I've got to see what's, what else is in that bill. Well, it's clear Governor DeWine has a lot to tackle as he begins a second term. DeWine says he doesn't have a New Year's resolution. But after he's sworn in January 9th, DeWine says there is a three-point plan in play. Are Ohioans going to see a different governor this next four years in terms of the way you govern? Will you stand up to your party? Look, the the people of the state of Ohio have given me the most precious thing there is, and that's time. Uh, Time to finish our business, our unfinished business. And we're going to really focus on three things. We're going to focus, uh, and this is in no particular order, we're going to focus on jobs. Uh, Jim Rhodes, you know, once, once said that, Jobs solve a lot of social problems, maybe not all social problems, but they solve a lot. Jobs are very important. We are creating jobs at a very fast rate in the state of Ohio, and we're going to continue to do that. Uh, Number two is education. Uh, From reaching out to a pregnant mother who's having difficulties and helping her all the way to getting having a 60 year old who is still working and making sure that his or her skill sets are where they need to be so that they can continue to be productive we're going to focus on education because that's how we give everybody an opportunity to live their american dream the third thing is mental health uh, we have neglected mental health as a country. Uh, John Kennedy, uh, when he was president, the last major bill he signed was the Community Mental Health Act. In that, we made a pledge that we would deinstitutionalize our hospitals, but at the same time, we would build a system where every Ohioan had the chance to get, and every American had the chance to get mental health. We've not done that. We are moving in that right direction, and we're going to have continue to have a real sense of urgency in that area. You bring up mental health. Parity law in the state is a huge issue. You have health providers who are providing mental health to children who aren't getting reimbursed at the rate that they need to to keep the lights on. Are you going to go after insurance companies to pressure them to uphold the parity law? We're going to do everything we can to enforce the parity law in the state of Ohio. Uh, The way it works is the majority of these policies do not come under the jurisdiction of the state of Ohio. But in those cases where they do, we're going to continue to do everything that that we can. Uh, We have to change uh, everyone's perspective in regard to mental health. We have to look at someone who has a mental health problem, uh, just like we would look at that person if they had uh, cancer or if they had some other medical problem. It is a medical problem. So changing the stigma 
uh, that surrounds mental health is a, a big part of what, what we have to do. And I think we've started. We had a campaign, you may have, may have seen it on TV, um, it, you know, Beat the Stigma. And part of that is to get people to understand if you have a mental health problem, it's just like another medical problem, and we have to treat you that way. Isn't the real challenge, though, also incentivizing people to stay in the profession and to join in the profession? Because yes. we have more people in need than we do people that can actually help them. They're getting out of the business. Last night, the legislature passed a bill uh, that I'd requested to provide $85 million to help with the workforce problem that we have with not enough people working in the mental health field. Uh, and so I'm very happy with what they did, and that is a, going to be a movement forward. What we're going to do is many people in this area who are going to college, they have to have internships, apprenticeships, where they don't get paid at all. And what happens is that is a barrier for many of them, and they can't go on. So we're going to remove that barrier and we believe create a lot more uh, people who are able to, to get their degree and help in the area of mental health. So they'll be paid now, those pay, they'll yes, be paid? Yes, they'll, they'll be paid and that will remove a barrier and people in the field tell us that that will mean that there will be a lot more people who will be able to get in the field, a lot more people who will be able to complete their, their degree and go out in, into the workforce. And you can watch Kevin's full sit-down interview with Governor DeWine on 10TV.com. Well, the new year will also bring a new U.S. senator representing Ohio. But we asked the senior U.S. senator from Ohio to look back at 2022. Yeah, I think our biggest successes were were, were dealing with people's problems every day. The PACT Act, uh, which I co-wrote with Senator Tester, the chair of the Veterans Committee, uh, will provide health care to um, literally tens of thousands of Ohio's veterans who were exposed uh, to these these uh, football field sized burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan where they where they breathe this air that six, eight, ten years later calls cause sometimes fatal uh, health care problems and bronchial diseases and cancers. Uh, we passed the infrastructure bill. Senator Portman and I worked on that to make sure that I mean, with strong Buy America provisions so that that um, when when work is done on any number of these um, road projects and water and sewer systems and broadband, that we use American products and American workers. What we did with the CHIPS Act is going to help Columbus in a big, big way with Intel and all the outgrowth and jobs uh, from that huge, massive project northeast of the city of Columbus. So all of those things passed. We've got to make sure they're implemented in the most important way. Senator Sherrod Brown also noted that some failures and said there's one thing that should have happened but didn't. The most important thing we haven't gotten done is the child is expanding the child tax credit. It expired a year ago when conservative, mostly pro, uh, just well, ultra conservative lawmakers killed it. It was um, it provided uh, child 90 percent of Ohio's children benefited from it, all but the 10 percent wealthiest families. It would have been two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars per child per month. It, it, it was in effect for six months. It eased people's lives. It, it would have blunted the effects of inflation for so many families that are suffering now. Um, I'm going to keep fighting for it until we get it back into law. Well, now that you have heard from the people in power, we take some of those same questions to political experts. What they say was the biggest takeaway from 2022. Next. The future depends on teachers. Every day, teachers are shaping our tomorrows starting their students on journeys that will change the course of history. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist 
who make preventing pandemics their life's work. Sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who will help combat climate change. And generating possibilities for a student who will be the first in their family to graduate college. It all starts with teachers who meet challenges with creativity, who reinvent education for the future, who work towards a school system that lifts up every child, regardless of race, income, or zip code, and who enable the full potential of our students, our communities, and our country. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Shape the future. Teach. Learn more and receive free support at teach.org. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is weight bias. I'm worried about your weight. Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every day. You're not the right fit for this job. Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight. These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me. I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor. Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to StopWeightBias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Angela Ann, courtesy of 10TV. I'm Corporal Snow. I'd like to wish my family back in Ohio a very merry Christmas and everyone else a very happy holidays. Hope you guys enjoy the cold weather while we enjoy the nice 60 degree weather here. Thank you for that. 2022, and we saw a lot of ups and downs in Ohio and in the U.S. as a whole. What those were exactly depends on who you ask. For a look back at the biggest political topics of the year, we went to Professor Herb Asher with the Ohio State University Department of Political Science and also Terry Casey, a Republican strategist. They both weighed in on J.D. Vance's Senate win during the November election. Trump's trophy, his, probably his biggest victory, was helping uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio get the Republican nomination, because without Trump's endorsement, uh, Vance would not have won that primary. And then Vance went on to win the, uh, uh, the general election. So probably as Ohio relates to uh, the national midterm elections, the two most significant things were, in fact, uh, uh, J.D. Vance, which, again, was Trump's major success this year, and then also the Democrats picking up a net of one, though, in the U.S. House districts. One of the things that he's going to have to look at is how much of a hand is out from the Democrats to cooperatively work together bipartisanly, uh, but also how much does he want to do that. But the advantage he's got is he doesn't have a past record and isn't as locked in to say past congressional votes as if he was elected from being a member of Congress. And he's got a six-year term. So he's got time, but he needs to do things. But people are going to be looking at because he's one of the youngest members of the Senate. 
Both experts also brought up the abortion debate, and they both believe it is a topic that will develop even more in 2023. There's obviously a lot of issues that are unresolved. Abortion's an example because there's debate of, and in the future we might have a constitutional amendment that sets uh, something different than what we have by current law, and even the current law Senate leaders realize that they're going to have to go back and do some tweaking because some of the legal definitions of protecting the life of the mother, how do you exactly define that? So abortion's an example where the details matter in terms of what point is it legal or appropriate or inappropriate to terminate a pregnancy. So there's a lot of things where the legislature is going to have to speak. You know, one of the things that's come up now, and it's probably going to be delayed until next year, is uh, a conception bill, a personhood bill. Uh, that's as restrictive a bill as possible. It is the most anti-abortion bill. Will it pass? I don't know. But there's certainly a, a, a subset of Republicans in the legislature who would want to do that. Uh, that will be that bill is so out of touch with where Ohioans are on abortion. Meaning, if you look at any public opinion poll, you will see that the vast majority of Ohioans will say, We believe there should be, be in fact, abortion rights with restrictions, with limits. And next week, we will talk with both political experts about 2023 and what you need to watch for from the State House. Hi, I'm Specialist Alyssa Heft, currently deployed with the 37th Infantry Brigade Combat Team. I just wanted to wish my family and friends back home a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Also wanted to give a little shout out to my four-year-old cousin, Brandy. I love and miss you guys so much, and I'll see you soon. And thank you for your service. Thank you all for joining us for Face the State. We'll be back again next week. That's again Angela Ann, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip. It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website, to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different, and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. We put our lives on the line for our country. We braved the unknown. We did what we were told. And we lit up. Our cigarette packs were as valuable as the packs on our back. Maybe more. At one point, cigarettes were part of our daily ration. Smoke them if you got them. And boy, we were smoking them. Bumming a smoke was the norm. It was an escape from the reality of dirt, sweat, and forgetting how many days you were so far from home. Never had to worry so long as you had a light. 
and the smoking lamp was lit. If that was you then, get your lungs screened now. Surviving lung cancer starts with a scan. Learn more at ScreenYourLungs.org. And thank you for your service. This PSA was made possible by industry funding and guidance from lung cancer patient groups. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Elaine Mardis, who is the co-executive director of the Institute for Genomic Medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital. How are you? Doing well, thanks. How are you, Dave? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Institute for Genomic Medicine, or IGM, is. So the Institute for Genomic Medicine is sort of a bold um, initiative on the part of Nationwide Children's Hospital. We opened this institute in 2016 at the end of that year, um, and really with a vision of introducing genomics into the practice of pediatric medicine. So we've been here for a little over six years now, and we um, have become in many ways an integral part of medical practice through what we call translation protocols. So translation is a term that's often used um, to indicate movement of central concepts from basic science, which is what most research is focused on, into clinical medicine and really sort of introducing new concepts um, that you know, may change the face of medical practice. So that's kind of what we're all about in a sort of 50,000-foot view. And I guess it can be centered or uh, targeting a number of diseases and ailments, cancer being one of them, obviously. Yeah, that's correct. And I think really in pediatrics, we have a unique opportunity to apply genomics and genomics technology, as you said, across a wide variety of diseases that are um, that are seen in children in our hospital, which is, of course, um, one of the largest in terms of patient volume in the United States. So just to cite a few examples for people to understand where else we can point our um, genomic medicine tools and technologies um, besides cancer. Um, we also have translational protocols, for example, studying epilepsy and really the underpinnings of changes in DNA that lead to epileptic seizures in children and young adults. Um, we're also very focused um, on a major investment the hospital has made in uh, biobehavioral health. Um, that is, in particular, the genetics around psychiatric disorders, such as bipolar, depression leading to suicidality, and autism. Um, all of these are well understood from large-scale discovery projects that have taken place across many institutions in the United States and the world to really understand the genes that are causative or involved in these diseases. And probably one of the most impactful translational protocols we've had to date, besides the cancer protocol, is a very rapid uh, turnaround information about the genomics of children that are in critical care, such as in the neonatal intensive care unit, where often decisions have to be made in a very short time frame, several hours to a few days, um, in terms of these children and what care they should receive. And in many cases, our genomic tools can really provide new insights um, to helping make those decisions for critically ill children. Just the whole prospect of finding 
uh, the internal switches that maybe need to be on or off that somebody didn't come with that way and being able to change those switches for a six-year-old, <laughs> that's pretty exciting. Yes, and I think, you know, it's a really great place to point our efforts in, in aggregate just because it can be so transformational for these patients and for their families. You know, we can provide much more accuracy many times in diagnosing these children. In some in some studies, such as the epilepsy study, for example, we can also reassure parents that it isn't something they did or a gene that was inherited from them that led to epilepsy. What we're finding in, in cases where we're studying epileptogenic tissue from brain, the sites in the brain where these seizures emanate from, is that these are often just random mistakes that occur in the course of development. And by removing that tissue, we can not only help that child overcome the seizures in many cases, but we can also in eventually identify new targets for medicines that may be more accurate, more precise, and more um, corrective of epileptic seizures in children moving forward. So we like to think about the program that we have as being informative about that child in the microcosm of their disease and their diagnosis, but we also know that the patients and families who consent for these studies are helping children in the future as well. And the uh, Institute for Genomic Medicine has just received a, a $10 million, part of a $10 million gift from Nationwide Foundation goes to the center, correct? Yes, that's correct. So Nationwide um, has the, the insurance company, of course, cited here in Columbus, um, has a, a really great program called their Innovation Fund. It's really donations from their employees across the United States that fuel the Innovation Fund. And much of the work that goes on at IGM, you know, the, the 10 or $11 million that we get year on year from this Nationwide Innovation Fund has historically put a lot of fuel in our tanks for pursuing these translational protocols and really changing a pediatric medicine. So it's incredibly gratifying to have that support from the Nationwide Foundation for the work that we do here. And when you mention parents who have their children involved in, the, in this testing at the center, we're talking about numbers in the thousands now over the last few years, right? Yes, we've through these translational protocols, we've been able to impact um, many children uh, directly, um, as you mentioned. So overall, we have currently open nine different translational protocols. Um, I named a few of them. I won't um, mention the rest of them, but you get the idea. Um, and yes, we are actively enrolling patients and families onto these protocols all the time. The other um, effort that uh, is intended for many of these translational protocols, as I mentioned, though, is that we we have the translational protocols as a means of engaging providers in epilepsy medicine or in biobehavioral health or in um, critical care, as I mentioned. What we ultimately would like to do, though, is offer the testing that we're performing on these children in the translational protocols in the clinical setting so that 
uh, over time, we transition from a research-based protocol where really it's a multidisciplinary team, so doctors, genomicists, bioinformaticians, you name it, all coming together around these specific um, children and their challenges and, and getting to the root of the problem as best we can, um, to a mode where as a provider or a you know physician within our health system you can over time begin to have this testing done just with a regular um, order for diagnostic testing so through our clinical laboratory we transition these early protocols into the clinical laboratory as validated clinical tests what that means is that a doctor seeing a new child in their um, clinic can you know, with the experience they've had it as being a part of the translational protocol, basically say, I know what kind of testing this child needs, I can order it directly, and because it's a clinical test, I can now write that information into the child's medical record and use it for decision-making about treatments or uh, other um, approaches to that child's disease. So that's really, in aggregate, the long-term goal of many of these protocols is to familiarize providers with what genomics can do to the point where then they can include it into the diagnostic component of the work that they do every day, um, valuable work that it is with our patient population. Talking with Dr. Elaine Martis, she is the co-executive director of the Institute for Genomic Medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Where uh, will genomic medicine go? Is it someday going to be, uh, you know, like a silver bullet for a lot of problems that humans deal with? Well, certainly that's the hope, and I think the earlier we can diagnose problems in the lifespan, the better we can um, deal with them, you know, as children phase from hopefully becoming older children to young adults and, and beyond. I think there are sort of two thrusts to this. One is a, a, a preventive aspect, if you will, where um, we can... For example, sequence the genome of a newborn, so at the earliest point in life, even if appearing healthy at that point in time, we have a genome sequence on record for that newborn. The genome in general doesn't change over time with a few exceptions, but this could lay a baseline for sort of anticipating what types of diseases, for example, that child growing through the lifespan into adulthood might encounter, might develop, such as um, type 2 diabetes, for example, or um, some of these um, psychiatric illnesses that I mentioned earlier. So that would be through a sort of looking in aggregate at the genome, all of the different locations and genes that we now understand and that knowledge is increasing every day. And using that sort of to set the stage for preventive medicine, knowing what types of diseases that individual is likely to develop. Um, that would actually change medicine in aggregate from being what we call, um, you know, sort of responsive, you get a disease diagnosis, you do something about it, to being very proactive, where as you could um, take steps to alleviate or take medications or, or lifestyle changes, et cetera. So, so that's one way that things, I think, will change over the longer term. In the nearer term, um, one
one example that comes out of our cancer uh, protocol that um, we were talking about earlier is really a me mechanism to actively test children as they're diagnosed with cancer, not just the ones that are fortunate to be treated at Nationwide Children's Hospital, but in aggregate across the United States. And here what we would be doing is looking at the genomics of the tumor compared to normal cells from that um, individual patient. This can provide a wealth of information to the treating uh, physician, the oncologist that's taking care of that patient, and they may be able to take advantage of many of the new medi medications that are um, you know, ever being approved by the FDA for treatment of cancer, um, typically in adults, but also children are starting to benefit more from those types of medications, so-called targeted therapies. So we really see this as a paradigm shift where we move away from the types of therapies used in cancer that are highly damaging and lead to poorer quality of life in kids that are cancer survivors to more efficient medicines that are more targeted, have fewer long-term side effects, and ultimately yield not only more cancer survivors, but also a better quality of life for those children as they grow into adults. The field of genomics and DNA and all that, it's so interesting because there are still pretty frequently you'll see articles from researchers just looking at something relatively simple, at least compared to cancer, for things like obesity and, and finding out, you know, they're learning more and more about what kind of links there could be there and that two people could go through life almost living identically and eating the same way and one might be obese and one might not because of that. Yeah, that's true. Um, we, you know, some of the some of the aspects we're learning about include the microbial inhabitants of the body, maybe the microbiome, maybe that's what you're referring to. And I think this is shedding, you know, new light on aspects of obesity um, and other diseases. It also turns out, not surprisingly, perhaps the microbiome is involved in cancer and response to cancer therapies. So I, I think it, you're right. With genomics, sort of the more the, that we study, the more we learn. And, and it's become, you know, quite interesting to think about how that knowledge can contribute to overall health um, as opposed to sickness. Well, you've been at uh, Nationwide Children's for about six years now. Uh, yes. it, it's still, every time I drive past the place, I still, you know, I still, <laughs> my mind is still stuck back to what it looked like 30 years ago. <laughs> and it's a completely different place. It's really true. Um, we're in an amazing phase of growth. As, um, as you mentioned, um, we are really excited here at IGM because there's a new research building that's um, basically appended onto the one that we're in right now. So RB3 is where we're at now. RB4 is literally right around the corner because it's be being built at a right angle uh, there along Livingston Avenue. And that will open in early May of next year. There we will occupy the entire second floor adjacent to the second floor that we're on in RB3 now. And um, I think it's just, you know, the beginning, uh, as you said, of a multitude of new buildings going up as well as a new hospital tower to accompany the one that's already there. So, um, you know, we're really poised for growth, and I think it's really been amazing to be a part of that. And it's really been amazing to have the support of the Nationwide Innovation Fund as well, because really what we're doing here would not be possible without um, those types of donations um, 
uh, as well as from others that donate through the um, Nationwide Foundation itself. It's uh, interesting because it, when the hospital gets that large, it seems like it provides flexibility as well because, you know, you've got the On Our Sleeves campaign now, which is mm-hmm. focusing so much on mental health with kids. Uh, when a pandemic comes along, you know, who knows? The next time it comes along, you may need an entire building over there to deal with it in one way or another, research or whatever. Yeah, you know, I think um, we are um, trying to um, really develop out many of those programs and the responsiveness as well. I think the thing that hasn't changed is that this is a very collaborative place, and this has been really the recipe for success for the translational protocols that we've opened because everyone is very keen to work together towards um, identifying best outcomes for children, and that's really the overarching sort of ethos here as part of our sort of one-team culture um, across the hospital. And I you know, we'll get bigger, but I don't think that in a, that will change. Talking with Dr. Elaine Martis, she's the co-executive director of the Institute for Genomic Medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Another hat you wear is professor of pediatrics at Ohio State's College of Medicine. I'm just curious, what is the future of pediatrics in terms of, are you getting adequate numbers of kids coming up who want to be pediatricians? Um, I So I think that is in fact a challenge. Um, pediatrics is, you know, uh, struggling a little bit just in terms of the number of MDs that are interested, you know, coming out of medical school, um, moving into pediatrics. I do think that will change as we begin to impact the um, capabilities around diagnosis, as I mentioned, using genomics. And we certainly have seen a lot of interest here in terms of our uh, medical trainees in different subspecialties from the hospital really becoming invested and interested in genomics. One of the programs that we're envisioning in the next couple of years is really developing out educational aspects of genomics and where we plan to begin to open that up is for training fellows. That's the end of your sort of medical training. So there's medical school, internship, residency, and then a fellowship. And what we would like to be offering in the next couple of years is a second year of fellowship. Traditionally, that's a one-year time period where during the second year, select fellows would be a part of the IGM um, work force and would really train in the genomics around the specialty area that they've focused on in their first fellowship. So I think this is, you know, the beginning of really changing the direction of pediatrics towards um, educating those young trainees around the aspects of genomics and how they play a role in diagnosis and treatment across different pediatric specialties. Is that likely to make a new pediatrician's job uh, more challenging? or because there's maybe more user-friendly information that might be available to them than there would have been 30 or 40 years ago, maybe not so much? No, it's it's a really good question. Actually, I think, you know, the hope is that it makes the comprehensive understanding of each individual child more complete and that by virtue of that you have an easier path to determining the next steps in their treatment. 
I do think, however, to your point, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, we were just starting to think about genomes, which are the basic instruction sets that, you know, encode the organism that results and how to use that information in the setting of, you know, genetics and model organisms and ultimately in medicine. And so there has been this sea change over a relatively short time frame with the sequencing of the Human Genome Project that we participated in um, originally, and then, you know, moving out to apply that into the medical setting. So I, I think the appreciation for genomics, certainly in newer medical trainees, is there much more so than it would have been 30 or 40 years ago. So they're almost poised to be, you know, be able to understand and interpret that information right out of the box. And this fellowship that I just mentioned, I think, would double down for those who are really keen to understand the nitty-gritty details about genomics and how it works. That won't be every doctor, but I think, um, you know, moving forward, we will have doctors that really have that area of specialization in genomics and actively utilize it in their day-to-day in treating and diagnosing patients. It's good stuff. You know, when you look back over the decades, one of the biggest success stories, it seems like, with childhood diseases and and how we've dealt with them besides some of the more commonly thought of ones like polio and things like that uh, is leukemia and this just seems like it could be you know even spanning many more ailments uh, something that could be akin to that down the line yeah that's true i mean um it's interesting that leukemia is the most frequently diagnosed type of childhood cancer but actually more children now die from brain cancer than they do from leukemia. So this is, I think, really our next area of focus in that, in general, we understand a lot about the genomics of brain cancer, but we don't, haven't really necessarily translated that into new medications for children with a, with a brain cancer diagnosis. Um, this is the focus in my laboratory in particular, but at IGM we have considerable a strength in what we call neurogenomics, so that spans from cancers to epilepsies. Um, which actually do co-occur. So we do see some children with brain tumors and epileptic seizures, but also complements um, new expertise that we've brought into Nationwide Children's Hospital. For example, our new division chief for neuro-oncology is Dr. Mariam Fulati, who is you know actively uh, treating patients with brain cancer in clinic, but um, is also a big believer in the power of research. So many of the children that she sees in her clinics are um, essentially participating in our cancer translational protocol for, you know, molecularly characterizing their cancers. And this, again, feeds forward into identifying the best therapy for them. And obviously, we offer a variety of, you know, clinical trials that those children can participate in as well. So I think we're starting now to try and um, take this, you know, considerable momentum that we have along with the various providers like Dr. Filotti and many of her colleagues and really start moving the needle on innovative therapies that are now going to make these brain cancers hopefully respond, um, go away, and not come back. So that's really the long-term vision here around this um, leading cause of pediatric uh, death by cancer. That's great. Uh, Dr. Elaine Martis, co-executive director of the Institute for Genomic Medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Anything else you'd like to add? 
Uh, no, I just um, appreciate, you know, the support that we're getting. I appreciate your interest for sure in these programs and all the great questions that you had for me today and uh, looking forward to listening to the podcast. Great. Uh, Dr. Mortis, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.